Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Pretoria is Professor Veronica Mackay, who is the Executive Dean of the Faculty of Education at the University of South Africa, UNISA. She was responsible for establishing the Institute for Adult Basic Education at UNISA, which has trained over 90,000 adult basic education teacher practitioners. She has served as the CEO of Karigude, the South African Literacy Campaign. She is also a coordinator of the Department of Basic Education's School Workbook Development Project, which provides learning materials for all public schools. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's a great privilege to be on your show. Thank you so much for joining us and for being part of our focus and our series on women in academia. To begin with, you've been Executive Dean of the Faculty of Education at UNISA since 2014. Can you tell us more about some of the work that you do and the responsibilities that come with holding this role? Okay, yes. Let me begin by describing, first of all, the faculty or the college that I head. It's a very, very large college. We work across the education sector, so we begin with educators or carers from birth to four, and then we go right across the spectrum to post-schooling, TVET colleges, and also adult basic education. So it's a very large college, and we supply almost half of the teachers in South Africa. So it's a massive role and it's a massive responsibility because you know that you are producing teachers that will be teaching the next generations of South Africa, possibly the next president. And so it's a huge responsibility. And if um, you consider that you're teaching half of our educators in the country, you are guaranteed that you're teaching half of the country, at least, in terms of the, the teaching staff that UNISA is producing. Yes, if one thinks of it in that way, knowing that the teaching force will probably be functioning for the next 30 years. We are teaching half the country. And so one has to take very, very seriously the role that the Dean of Education at UNISA has. What would you say are some of the greatest challenges in this position? Um, at the moment, there's a massive recurriculation process. Um, we have a new policy, uh, um, the Mr. Tech document, which is the minimum requirements for teacher education qualifications. Um, and then in terms of TVET, there are new policies for TVET, and there are also new policies for, for adult basic education or adult and community education. So we're in a massive transition at the moment and getting that right so that we know that our graduates are, are going to be well placed in this in this education sector uh, you know it's a huge challenge and for us the main challenge is scale you get it wrong and you get it wrong to scale and like you said it's got long-term implications because these people that you're putting through will have an impact on the workforce for 30 years to come yes. And turning towards the future, are there any particular milestones that you want to achieve? Well, basically getting this done, working through the master plan, and then we're also moving quite a lot to 
digitization to what we call a blended approach. UNISA is a, a distance institution and a large portion of our teaching has been text-based and we, we're wanting to go online, um, making sure that we in line with, for example, international goals, international targets. And I work quite a lot at the international level to make sure that we both inform the international agenda, but that we also share and draw on ideas. And speaking in terms of international work and continental work, more and more we operate in a globally connected society. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the significant research or collaborative projects that you're working on with your counterparts in other countries? Um, yes, I've worked with quite a lot of the international organizations, starting with the British um, um, International Development Group, and a lot of the work that I did in adult basic education was informed by collaboration, and that was reinforced by the work I did with UNESCO, where I now serve as UNESCO Fellow, but we worked, for example, on the development of the, the new um, Sustainable Development Goal and especially Goal 4 for education. And all of these initiatives inform the way that education happens in the country, happens globally, and how we at UNISA are able to interpret and to make particularly international goals relevant for, for the kind of work that we do here. And there seems to be a dynamic of it's not just about taking information or best practices from other countries, but it's also about being able to contribute into the discipline from the work that's done in South Africa too. You know, I think South Africa and Africa indeed is a big player in, in most of the international discussions. So we talk about thinking globally but acting locally. But it's an interchange that, that Africa is feeding into, into the international agenda. But at the same time, we learn and we share. There's always the kind of two-way interaction. It's not merely learning and transplanting. It's learning and engaging and then making applications. And so yeah, we set up the literacy campaign and it was intended to reach 4.7 million. And that was partly what I did when I was in government. The other aspect that I was able to learn was when we were in New Zealand, we were exposed to the Department of Education's in-house publishing sections and one of the, the tasks that I did do when I was in basic education was to help to conceptualize the school workbook project. And a lot of my insights came from what we saw in New Zealand, um, in Kenya, and um, in many of the states in the United States and Canada. And by last year, I know that government had distributed probably 300 million school books. To, to kids in, in public schools. And that, again, is the kind of responsibility that is associated with scale. One has to be really careful because you can have a massive impact, but you can also have a national disaster if you get it wrong. Scale seems to be a common theme that runs through this, which yeah, I, I totally underestimated. I mean, you're talking there about... 300 million school books. You spoke about 
million people mm. in terms of being able to touch them from a literacy perspective. And I think those are all critical functions in society. If someone can't read, if someone can't count, these are the basic tools that you need in order to move ahead and, and develop in your life. It's a fundamental tool. Um, I'm busy helping with what we call the closeout report at the end of the literacy campaign, and I'm analyzing data from millions of learners to see what kind of impact becoming literate made on their lives. And the most important for, for adults, and you must know these are um, um, people who during apartheid were denied schooling and um, we were able to reach them through the Curry Goody Literacy Campaign, which, by the way, in Chivenda means let us learn. The most significant indicator that all learners indicated was self-confidence, how much better they feel about themselves, how they feel respected now that they can read. So, you know, that was the main indicator. And then there were a whole range of other indicators. For example, being able to better understand healthcare messages. Learners, once they learned to crack the code, a lot of these pieces fell into place for them and that they were better able to understand the health message, but they were also able to access it. And so those were significant indicators. Um, others were the granny who was able to suddenly use an ATM for the first time and one of our learners said she had no idea what her monthly um, pension grant was because she would always send her grandkids and she never ever received the same amount because they were obviously <laughs> taking a bit of a commission. Tax. Um, yeah, and uh, as funny as it is, you know, it's a serious thing that granny can now be in control of her own finances. And the number of women who indicated that they were better able to handle finances and household finances and, I mean, to become a Minister of Finance at home is a significant elevation. And then the other indicator that we found was the kind of resilience of adult learners that when they were in group, they conceptualized projects, whether they were growing vegetables or going to go and lobby a councillor because the bridge was broken. But that kind of grit and that fight back was very significant. You know, all these stories that you have narrated really echo the power of education, mm -hmm. not just in terms of the content, but in being able to apply the thinking, the rationale, and advance, put things together and, yes. and comprehension, which people who weren't receiving the benefit of education couldn't do previously. Now, our program, Womanity, Women in Unity, is all about gender equality. And one of the things that I'd like to talk about, um, and we've spoken about literacy which, and education, which clearly is, is a fundamental that people need to have. But looking towards women in particular, what are your perspectives about women's empowerment and gender equality legislation? particularly in terms of helping close some of the gender gaps which are still prevalent, whether that is pay differentials, promotion issues, position issues. Legislation in terms of gender is critical, and that would then guarantee numbers and quotas. But I believe that all policies should have a gender awareness about them, so that if you're working on no matter what budget, the budget is gender sensitive. That is a sensitivity of women behind all the policies. What worries me often is 
the gap between policy and practice. Sometimes we have brilliant policies, but the moment it comes to practice, it becomes dislocated. Um, if we don't take and re-socialize the men who often are um, in charge of these policies to, to get rid of that gap. And I'm just going to go back to the school workbooks that I worked on. At the level of children, we were making the boy-child aware of some of the problems that the girl-child might face, um, stereotypes, how did, um, that girls can't do math. And so gender sensitivity needs to work across the spectrum. Boys need to be made aware of it, and girls need to be made aware of challenging barriers. And so back to legislation, it's not just something that gets ticked. It needs to be something that is lived. And unless men are made aware of even their, their sort of unconscious bias, we're not going to make a lot of headway with policy. It needs to be cross-cutting, um, and it needs to be affirmative. In the university at the moment, there is affirmative possibility that if a man and a woman are both equally appointable for certain position, we would choose the females. Unless we work on the male species, we're not going to get very far. You're 100% right. And I think that sometimes when we're looking at affirmative policies, that sometimes quotas or affirmations are, are regarded as, as controversial. But in my opinion... Until we get to an equal playing field, those are, are the mechanisms that need to be utilized to help drive equality. We have to work with a quota system because of the historical inequality. I can say that over my lifespan in, in education, there have been really huge changes in the sector, both policy-driven and probably ideologically driven. When I started teaching in the late 70s as a school teacher, a married woman could not ever be appointed permanently. And the moment you got married or if you became pregnant, you lost your job and you were put onto temporary staff. So there has been a change in, in the education sector and you see more and more women in power just as we have two female ministers of education. What would you say have been some of the key drivers to realize this transformation? You know, one mustn't ever underestimate the apartheid struggle for women, although um, there are many contenders that would say that the struggle for liberation in South Africa focused mainly on race and maybe somehow on class. But I do believe that with the changes in the country, a greater awareness of democracy, of human rights, all of that tried to sweep away the inequalities of the past. Look, we haven't got there yet. It's, we're en route. But those changes and a greater awareness of human rights, the human rights culture, the new culture has had to deal with the remnants of the old society that we had. Um, in the school system and, and certainly in the teacher education that I'm responsible for, we look at... Em um, improving teachers' values, even the values of Ubuntu, caring, nurturing, um, of unlearning the past, so that we're able to move into a, a more equitable society. Um, there's a huge focus in the school system and university system of critical thinking. I don't know if you can hear this background noise at the moment, because on the campus there are protests against 
gender discrimination and female harassment. So I, I think the, the society we're in is, is not going to tolerate, and most of these um, atrocities almost are brought to the table and brought, a lot of them are brought to book. Um, with children, when I worked with the school system, look, we know gender violence, it's rife. It's rife in institutions and we know that in households too. So with the school books, what we tried to do was to make children aware. So there is a greater awareness that we didn't have before. And all credit to the struggle for liberation. And it was not just a struggle for political freedom. It was a struggle for human rights. In the last segment that we've just spoken about, one of the factors which I found coming through loud and clear is that we absolutely do not have to accept the status quo of a society. As humanity, we've got the capacity to change, to unlearn elements which are incorrect, to reprogram our thinking and to transform society into the right way. Whether we've got acts of civil movements, you've mentioned on campus that there are protests that are going on, people are raising awareness about issues that they are concerned about. And once that awareness has been raised, then people can start taking action to address the situation. Yeah, it is about reprogramming. And it's about working with children in the school system, even with bullying, bullying in, in a school setting, no matter how little there are, ways that it can be apprehended, whether it's reporting it to a teacher or protecting another child. The education system is extremely powerful in making these changes. It's certainly about tackling the many oppressions that we have. And my own background as a sociologist, where probably constantly in my awareness is to look for where are the power blockages, where are, um, where are the, the points of oppression. And we grew up on, on, on a, a, a sort of a diet of looking at liberal feminism, Marxist feminism, and the radical feminism that would have challenged patriarchy and, and capitalism. And then the, the um, African feminism, which is a triple oppression of uh, sort of race, class, and, and gender patriarchy. And how African women, under extreme adverse situations and often situations of, of poverty, extreme poverty, and migration of part of the families and so on, how they've risen to challenge the barriers of oppression, um, how the literacy campaign was able to assist many women to grow that resilience and to be able to adapt and to challenge and, and to speak truth to power. There's a lot that we can learn from, from the struggles of women. Yes, I'd say women in the continent have certainly had more than their fair share of, of struggles to deal with looking at the intersectionality of race, class, gender, patriarchy, and usually poverty is mm, one of the, poverty, yeah. the, the key areas that they are um, confronted with. Today, we're talking to Professor Veronica Mackay, who is the Executive Dean of the Faculty of Education at the University of South Africa. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk.
Prof Mackay, I must say that the teaching profession seems to be one sector which is favorably biased towards women. As we've already discussed, they provide an important role in education as well as the development of society. How do you see the responsibilities of universities towards shaping the thinking of students as the country's and continent's future socio-political economic players? Um, UNISA itself, we uh, are a university with, with eight faculties or eight colleges. So we work cross-sectorally from engineering and science and human sciences and, of course, education. We also work in, in teacher education from, as I mentioned, from birth to four, right across the schooling sector. And we obviously, in the providing of human resource capacity, we have a critical role to play, certainly in South Africa, where we are producing at least one-third of the graduates across the sector, and as I mentioned, close on 50% in in teacher education. So we are informed by the national development policies, by the market intelligence. But our focus also has to be on graduateness, that the graduate is able to function in the society, that we, we try to take care of the ethical side, that they're able to work in terms of the sustainable development goals. So, for example, the global compact. We look to the green economy, the blue economy, and again to harnessing um, critical thinking skills so that students don't just graduate as bureaucrats, rule followers, and box tickers, but, tick tickers, but that they actually um, f focus on making a contribution. To, to the developing society we live in. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, for instance, that there was policy changes that were happening which were causing adjustments to the, the curriculum. And one of the things that I find fascinating about the world that we live in is that it is developing and evolving so quickly that it, these changes occur faster than we've got time to adjust curricula. How do you think we can develop our capabilities for the future to overcome this gap? Particularly as a distance education institution where much of our um, teaching is, is text-based, digitization is going to be the only solution for enabling us to keep up to date with changes and the curriculum is living. It's, it's not something that one does and then it's, it's dead. So we, we're using increasingly now um, e-resources that students are able to, to download text and we're able to, to update our teaching by looking at the latest journal articles. Open education resources is also a very, very important way that we're able to keep abreast with what is happening um, across the globe and then trying to move quite a large portion of our textual teaching to online where it can be um, easily modified. And I had great success when I was working for the Department of Basic Education in that we were doing um, our own in-house publishing 
And we were able every year to modify the school books that the kids were using because it, it wasn't feasible for the state to, to warehouse books. It was expensive. And so each year materials were printed or they were beamed and could be downloaded on where schools were using um, tablets. So it just made things that much easier for us to change. Sometimes you had an error in a book that you needed to correct or um, parts of the curriculum were not that um, transparent for, for teachers and schools to follow. And so we were able to do quite a lot of um, updating and modification in, in that way rather than the um, textual way, way of dealing with materials and having one book that a student has to consult for the next five or ten years. So it's, it's dynamic and in order to be dynamic and to have a dynamic curriculum, I think one has to move more and more towards using um, the different ICT um, platforms that are available to us. But ha having said that, um, often our students and one must understand that our students come from across the socioeconomic spectrum. Um, often our students are less secure about learning online um, or having to, to mediate learning using um, a digital device. And poorer students haven't grown up with technology or with devices at home and devices in their hands. And so we have had students saying, it puts us at another disadvantage because we're not able to compete with our peers who've grown up with technology. And so that kind of bridging, and I think it's a bridging that we need to do in schools, and it's bridging of the digital divide um, where often teachers themselves either don't have access to a device, don't have access to data, or don't have access to particular skills to use the technology. And these are areas that we do have to work quite a lot on. So for example, in, um, in our new qualification, every teacher um, graduates to, or every student that comes through our faculty or college has to do a course on ICT literacy and be able to uh, to maneuver the technology and to start to either use it for their own learning or to integrate into the teaching of um, learning in, in their own classrooms. So it's a way of being current, it's a way of being dynamic, but at the same time we as educators and as, as large institutions need to, to help students over that barrier and it's the, the digital divide barrier. It is an enormous barrier that needs to be overcome but ultimately the way our society is progressing and the direction that we're taking it's a necessity to have ICT skills for, for everyone and I would almost argue that one day it'll probably become a, a human right to have access to the internet and, and online connectivity. People are, I mean, there's, there's quite a lot of um, discussion that it's a life skill and it is a right, that connectivity becomes a right mm. because it's so excluding. And here, when I go back even to the literacy learners that I had, the, the greatest breakthrough was being able to access uh, either an ATM or to be able to send an SMS using a cell phone. And that was, that, that, that's your entree in. Apart from bridging that gap, 
um, many of our students are, are funded by the state schemes, and we have in education, we have Rufunza Lushaka students, um, which means they receive a, a bursary from the Department of Basic Education. And that enables them to buy a device and um, to, to access um, data. And we, we, we're actually asking for free data that they, and in fact the university has done it, that students could access the university platform for learning, zero rated. And I think more and more that is what, the, the direction that we need to take. What we have done in the interim is we've had a joint project between the Department of Higher Education, Basic Education, and ourselves as UNISA, and we've resourced teacher centers, and when these teacher centers are in every school district, so they kind of cover the country. Our students have access to all of those. So this is the kind of middle step that we have. And we're finding that students are starting to use these as resources instead of having to queue at, uh, at an internet cafe or whatever. It's for free and they're accessible. And as a middle step, until students have their own devices, we are starting to bridge that digital divide. Those are all great enablers uh, that the university has implemented, uh, particularly sourcing aspects of free data, being able to provide devices in order to allow connectivity um, to occur amongst students and to access our global society. We've spoken about the professional aspects. Now I'd like to turn more towards a, a personal side and one of the questions that I ask my guests on this program who've made tremendous contributions in their respective fields of expertise is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. In your opinion, what have been some of the key drivers to your success? Gosh, it's weird because one doesn't look at oneself as being successful. Um, but probably if I, um, grit is what I, I would want to use. That I probably I'm like a dog with a bone, and I, I, I really persevere, and I don't allow if I have um, a, a path that I'm going to follow. Um, I, I, I do so with grit, and when one does hit a number of barriers, whether they're political barriers, um, social barriers, challenging systems that sometimes are not conducive to good learning or to being able to, to live on one's um, mandate, one needs to have grit um, and to be resilient and not to be let down. And then also from a very early age, I, I, I have from the age of probably five, six, I developed my own kind of social conscience. I grew up um, on the mines in Johannesburg, and I was always quite amazed at that I'd begun to read, and I was able to um, read prices in the shop, and then to be surrounded by these big, strong mine workers. Many of them were migrant laborers who couldn't read, and I think um, one from an early age became aware of the kind of social injustices in our society and equalizing society has always been a, a goal that I had um, and I suppose sometimes it could be hard to grow up with a social conscience and see 
that most of the society is oppressed and is unequal. Uh, you know, it became almost a life mission, um, and probably education is one of the paths to dealing with with social inequalities. It's a very powerful motivation to pursue in terms of equalizing society. You mentioned some of your experiences like being surrounded by the mine laborers. Can you share some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up? Um, yeah, I grew up on on crown mines in Joburg and just the way the men worked or lived, for example. So you would have had what we called the men's single quarters and those were for white men and then the, the mine compounds. And because we were kids able to roam freely amongst the mine dumps and the, mine, um, the mining community, yeah, I was always very, very aware that um, black men were putting compounds. And, I mean, we got close enough and um, we could see the slabs that were makeshift beds and we could see the, the, the men's single quarters. And so from very early, um, the, we grew up as children without kind of racial barriers because you, you mixed and you were always treated um, as a child in, in the form of Ubuntu sort of very kindly. But often then being asked by a mine worker in a shop, and, and I'm going back to age six, seven, can you tell me what the price is? and showing you a handful of coins and saying, do I have enough in my hand to pay for that? Or asking, being given an address to go and do part-time gardening, which was what the mine workers did, and could I show them where that particular address or street was? So it was kind of growing up with that kind of consciousness. And yeah, maybe, you know, I was fortunate. I've been really fortunate in having that kind of exposure and recognizing social injustices from an early age and, yeah, just being able, uh, I suppose sociology and education were both pathways into the kind of life that I've chosen and the, the career that I've chosen. Social injustice and inequality have clearly been strong influences in your life. Um, who would you say have been some of the strong women in your life and how they made you become who you are today? My own mom was a very strong woman and my grandmother was a strong woman and there was an awareness again amongst them. For example, my mom was a piano teacher and in those days you, you would have gone to jail for teaching black learners in your home. Uh, but that was never ever an issue and there were black music students coming into our home and that was how we grew up as children. Um, this is the, the week of um, Mama Mandela's fu funeral and she signified a great woman, her striving for political freedom, her striving for the underdog, her kind of self-sacrifice. And, um, you know, one coming through a struggle history and early on in my own life, I was very aware um, of Mama Mandela, for example, and the critical role and the self-sacrifice that she made. Um, one also becomes aware of one's own privilege. And um, I think what's important with the recognition of privilege and how one uses one's privilege to help underprivileged. I think these are important 
lessons that sometimes we we don't think about ourselves as being privileged, but what can we do with our privilege? Thanks for sharing those important reflections. And lastly, as we close out the conversation today, could you please share a few words of inspiration or wisdom that you'd like to impart to younger women listening to us on the continent? I spoke earlier about unlearning, and I think unlearning is very important because we often learn to be who we are, and often we need to unlearn who we are. And I'm talking to black and white women that there's quite a lot that we all need to unlearn um, we need to rethink the way that we think. I think that's important. And that um, one of your questions earlier on was, is equality po possible? And equality is possible. And we are equal. But we struggle with the way that society perceives this equality. And so it's about unblocking, unlearning, unthinking and rethinking um, and taking on the different challenges and, and, and the blockages and also rules that are unworkable. There are many rules that are unworkable that need to be unthought and rethought. So, yeah, that is my message. I think it's a really strong motivational message on the ability to change things that aren't working and if it means changing yourself then so be it thank you so much for joining us today it's been a real pleasure hearing about the work that you do the changes that you're driving in society both from a South African perspective as well as into the continent and the impact that it is going to have on generations of the future Thank you. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Veronica Mackay, who is the Executive Dean of the Faculty of Education at the University of South Africa.